0: The church in Galatia was born out of a beautiful movement of the Holy Spirit. The powerful and potent preaching of the good news of Jesus birthed a movement among the Galatians. But shortly after the Apostle Paul left, the church was hit with a crisis. The church had been infiltrated by a poisonous and convincing idea. Faith in Jesus was not enough. Instead of resting upon the completed work of Jesus, the Galatians began to believe they needed to affiliate with the right tribe of Christians, which meant they had to add to the equation. It was Jesus plus fulfilling the law, Jesus plus religious affiliation, Jesus plus sacred traditions. And if we're not careful, We too can heretically add to the gospel in the name of our own theological tribalism. But adding to the gospel only subtracts from it being the good news. There is only one equation we need Jesus plus nothing equals everything.
1: Oh, good morning, Ross City Church. How are we doing? Oh, you can tell from the bumper it's going to be a banger today. All right, grab your Bibles. Galatians chapter 1. We are starting a new series. We are launching into the book of Galatians. And here's what I want to say, okay? I want to speak to a few groups of people. Um, First, I want to speak to those of you who have been wounded and hurt by the church. As we go through this epistle, man, this is going to be balm to your soul, Uh, the, the way that the Lord sees you and what the church is meant to be. Man, it is just gonna be so comforting. Uh, to those of you who love the church, this is gonna fire you up. You're gonna have a renewed passion for the gospel, uh, for the purpose and the centrality and the heart of the church. And those of you who are new to church, you're just like exploring things, man, you're going to love this because it gets to the main thing. And there's also a little bit of drama. We're going to spill some tea in the book of Galatians. So it's going to be fun. So Galatians chapter one, starting in verse one, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, Accursed Lord, as we come to your text this morning, would you speak deeply to this church? Would we be a church that just over and over and over falls in love with the gospel? Would you protect our church from being pulled all different kinds of ways? Would you guide us deeper into love of you? As we study your word, as we study doctrine, as we study theology, would it all push us deeper and deeper and deeper in love with you and your bride? Would you use this in powerful ways over these next couple months as we look at this epistle, Lord? I pray all this in your name. Amen. Uh, so this is written by the Apostle Paul. So it begs the question, so who is the Apostle Paul? Uh, I want to give a little context. Uh, now, if you've been doing New in 90, reading along with us, even if you're an early morning reader, uh, great, great timing. Uh, this morning, you would have read about the Apostle Paul, okay? So he started out as a guy named Saul. And, and to understand the context here is Jesus, he had 12 disciples, People, these men that he was teaching and, and, and they were walking with him and he gives them, he commissions them to go into all of the world and to declare the gospel, to go and make disciples, to go baptize people, to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. One of them uh, didn't make the cut, Judas, uh, he was done, all right? So, uh, and then Jesus, he sends the rest, so they, they, they decide, okay, well, we need 12. Uh, these, these disciples are going to become apostles, so they kind of roll the dice, and it lands on Matthias, right? And so you're like, Matthias, you're number 12. You never hear about him again, okay? And so then, then what's happening is there's this scene where they're supposed to be going out on mission, and they're not right? And I kind of just picture, like, this scene of, like, you know, the Trinity up in heaven just kind of looking down, you know, and God the Father's like, why aren't they doing anything? Like, why aren't they going anywhere? And Jesus is like, Dad, I told them, like, you know, and they're just like, there, right? okay, this didn't really happen, okay, they're just making this up, but, you know, and, and so, like, we need somebody else. Let's find somebody else, and, and what about that guy, right? And Jesus is like, seriously? Saul of Tarsus? He's like killing my church, he's persecuting, he's stoning, all these kind of things. And the father's like, yeah, but look at him go. Like, let's get him on our team, right? So Jesus shows up, and this part actually happens, okay? Jesus shows up, and he radically saves Saul, and he becomes Paul. And, and Paul shows up to the other 12 apostles, and they're kind of like scared. And, and he shares the story of how he got saved and converted. And, and, and they, it, it, all of a sudden, uh, Paul, he, he's kind of getting the backstory. He's like, okay, so we're supposed to go to the ends of the earth, right? And they're like, yeah. He's like, where have you gone? And they're like, well, it's just kind of scary out there. So um, we've been sticking with Jerusalem. And so Paul pulls out a map and he says, okay, um, here's Jerusalem. You guys take Jerusalem and then I'll get the rest, right? (laughs) And this is like his third missionary journey. And so Paul, he starts going to all these cities and places all around the known world. And he's preaching the gospel. And through his powerful preaching of the gospel, there's this radical transformation and this planting of churches. And Paul, he, he opens his lives. He says, I didn't just share the gospel, but I shared my very life as well. When Paul leaves these cities, there's weeping. There's tears because he is building upon the gospel. And we get a glimpse of this gospel here in the opening of Galatians. It's like he's like, hey, hey guys, it's Paul. Hey, let me just remind you, just a synopsis. Here's the gospel. He says, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father, to, who, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He, he's like, hey, I, I just want to remind you of the gospel because you've lost track of it. Now, what is the gospel that Paul is going around preaching? Let me give you a synopsis of it. Here's one way that I like to think about the gospel. The gospel is the story of God restoring all things through Jesus. First of all, it's, it's a story. It is the story of something that has happened. And, and there's, there's a narrative to it, and there's a flow. And, and, and the beginning of the story is creation. We are created in God's image for relationship, with him. But then there's a fall where where sin enters the world and we turn inward and we reject God's love and we choose to follow ourselves and it brings a curse upon the whole world. But God steps in and he offers his redemption. Since Jesus Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the climax of the story. All of the Old Testament is looking forward to this Messiah coming. And then all of the New Testament is reflecting on Jesus, redeeming us and setting us free. And then there's a future to the story. And what's the future to the story? When all things is restored. When There's this new creation. So first, we need to understand it's a story. Second, it's the story of God. Um, It's not the story of us. We, we like to read the Bible and like, okay, what does this say about me? It's not about you. <laughs> it's about God. And the gospel is about God. It begins with God. In the middle is God. The end, it's all, it's a story of God. He is the one who does the rescuing. It is not a burden on you. Piper, put, John Piper puts it like this. He says, the gospel is not a heavenly demand of what we must do to be saved, It is a heavenly declaration of what God has done to save us. This is why the gospel is good news, because it's not a burden on you. So it's the story of God restoring all things. What that means is, is that all things at the fall, at the curse, all things were broken in heaven and on earth, relationships, the world, all of it. But Jesus, he is restoring all things, Later, um, Paul writes in Colossians in another epistle. He says, for in him, talking about Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to what? Reconcile to himself some things, a few things. No, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And all of this is through Jesus. All of it. It's the story of God. Restoring all things through Jesus. Not through your good behavior, not through your righteous deeds, not through your fulfillment of the law. All of this is by grace through faith in Jesus. This is the biblical gospel. This is Paul's gospel. It is clear that salvation from first to last is God's doing. It is his calling. It is his plan. It is his action. It is his work. And so he is the one who gets all the glory in all of this. It's not about us saving ourselves. And, and we, actually, we actually feel uncomfortable with this because um, we want to be the hero. And so because of our hero complex, our savior complex, we want like rule, okay, if I just follow these rules, if I just fulfill this, then I'm good enough and they're bad enough and I get in and they're out. And that's actually what most religion says. But this is why the gospel is so contrary to that, is because we earn nothing. You don't have to be good enough or godly enough. And so we long and we pull for these things. And the religious, the the pull of the religious says, man, if I just keep these rules, then I'm gonna earn eternal blessing. And the pull of the secular says, man, grab a hold of these things and you'll experience blessing now. In the gospel, it turns all of this completely upside down. There's these two waves. The first wave is the gospel says, you are in such a hopeless position that you need a rescue that has nothing to do with you at all. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We can't save ourselves. We can't undead ourselves. This is why the gospel is offensive. The gospel says, man, you're broken and you can't fix yourself. But this is why the gospel is so beautiful. The second wave says, God and Jesus provides a rescue which gives you far more than any false salvation your heart may love to chase. And so, the gospel is the will of God. The gospel is the work of God. It's the grace of God, and therefore all the glory goes to God. Now, imagine Paul is going around, and he's planting these churches through declaring and displaying the gospel, and he sees them birthed. And planting a church is it's an incredible thing. It's such a unique thing. I've tried to come up with like analogies of what it's like before. Um, and, and it's so challenging. You know, honestly, the best picture of it is because you're just like opening your life and you're pouring out your heart and you're just like moved to tears to see life change. And pe- it, is the, it is one of the greatest things I've ever been a part of. And the closest comparison, honestly, is like, it's like raising a child. And, and, and here's what I mean. Like, it takes a literal miracle of God for it to be born, right? God has to intervene. And then it's born and you're just like, terrified and overwhelmed and completely unprepared the whole time right you're just like what is actually happening and when it's first born everything about it is awkward right you're awkward it's awkward you don't know what to do you just feel you have no idea you're just like kind of hoping it grows uh, you want to feed it the right things. You want to keep the, keep it from consuming the wrong things. And you're really, at the end of the day, you're just trying to keep it alive, well exhausted, and covered in crap, right? Like it, this. It's just that's church. That's church planting. That's what it is. And somehow, the whole time, in the midst of all of this, you're thinking this is the greatest thing I've ever been a part of. It, there's just a joy, and and, and you hear it. And Paul's voice. And so here's the thing. When you pour out your life for something, when something toxic and dangerous comes after something that you love, you better believe you're gonna go into protection mode. And so imagine being Paul, giving your life to this gospel, seeing churches planted by this gospel, seeing new life sprout out, and then all of the sudden, this beautiful community that has purpose and meaning and identity in Christ is starting to get hijacked. He hears that this church that he loves is under attack from zealous, religious, self-righteous, pharisaical wolves and false teachers. A group of toxic, dangerous people, they're infesting the church that he so dearly loved by trying to pervert and distort the gospel. No wonder Paul goes Papa Bear mode in this moment. And he uses some of the strongest language you'll find in any of his letters. Like what does he say here? Let him be cursed by God. Later. Later. Uh, he's talking about these Judaizers, these people of the circumcision. And he just, he says, you know what? I wish those who are troubling you would just emasculate themselves. They're like, oh yeah, you wanna have a little surgery? Why don't you just cut the whole thing off? Like he, he gets heated. You're like, man, like, you know, you need like a kid's version of the book of Galatians, right? And you're like, ah, careful, Paul. Like Twitter's gonna cancel you. He's like, I don't care, man. Like I'm coming hard. And so what are they doing that's so dangerous and toxic? Well, they're preaching a false gospel. So what is a false gospel? He uses three different phrases here in this passage. He says a different gospel or a distorted gospel or even a contrary gospel. And because presumably the Galatians, they're still embracing a message that is somehow related to Jesus. But this message has been distorted and unrecognizable when compared to the good news that Paul had received and passed on to them. And so for, from Paul's perspective, this new message that they were embracing is hardly new, good news at all. And there's two ways that we can pervert or distort the gospel. First, we distort the gospel when we subtract from the gospel. Um, and you see this. Churches do this today. Uh, the main way we do this is by we remove theological concepts that are hard to swallow. Uh, we, talk, we stop talking about things like sin And repentance. But here's the thing. If there's no sin, then there's no separation. And if there's no separation, there's no need for atonement that needs to be made. And so we pervert the beautiful truths of Scripture when we fit them into our own cultural narrative. We undermine God's word by saying, no, no, it's not infallible. And we reject his voice in our life. It's no longer a guiding voice. We compromise on what God has said about Jesus being the only way. And we say, no, no, all religions, they're essentially the same. And in doing so, we actually profane the name of Christ. We erase hard theologies like hell and eternal separation. And in doing so, we erase our need for eternal rescue. We're undermining the gospel when we do this. We change the definitions of things like marriage and gender and justice and order. And in doing so, we undermine God's rule and reign and what he has laid out for us. This is what could be known as liberal progressive theology. And I don't mean liberal in a, in, in a political sense at all. I mean liberal in, hey, there's just, there's just freedom to just you know, give, it, give life its own meaning and religion its own meaning. And progressive in terms of like, hey, we're just gonna keep advancing alongside culture. Whatever culture says, that's what goes. And it says it doesn't really, liberal progressive theology says it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a good and loving person. And here's the thing, when you first hear it, like it sounds so loving and open-minded, doesn't it? man, if I could just be a good and loving person. But here's the the problem with that. It's actually a rejection of grace. It's a rejection of grace. And let me explain the two ways it's a rejection of grace. First, it declares that we get to God by our goodness. And it rejects our need for a Savior. And in doing so, it actually means bad people, people who don't align with our moral standards, They have no hope. And the gospel actually becomes exclusive, not inclusive. Now you have to just be good enough for this cultural narrative. Here's a second way that it, it rejects the gospel of grace. It encourages people to think, man, if I'm just tolerant and open to the world, then I'm pleasing to God. And it rejects grace and it gives us the glory and it redefines sin by the world's judgment rather than God's. It's actually a rejection. When we subtract from the gospel, we pervert the gospel and we reject Jesus and we reject God's goodness and his grace. But this is actually not what Paul is dealing with, with the Galatians. A lot of times when we hear about wolves and false teachers, we think, oh, it's people who are trying to secularize the gospel. But often in the early church, it was people doing something very different. It was people who were contradicting the gospel by adding to the gospel. And we can do the same. This is what he says in verses six and seven. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And he puts it like this, which is really no gospel at all. So, so what's happening here is they are adding to the gospel. Originally, uh, the Christian movement was a, a Jewish messianic movement. Okay? It's a carry forward of the Old Testament where, where, where the, the, Jew, the Hebrew people... Some of them were like, Jesus is the Messiah, and they start following him. And then the, the gospel starts being preached. And what happens is, along with this Jewish messianic movement, there is a group of, of non-Jewish believers who are becoming Christians and following Jesus. And what's happening is they have this new freedom in Christ, and they don't, they don't follow any of the Old Testament laws. They they didn't do things like circumcision. They weren't worried about food, you know, the food laws. Um, They didn't take Sabbath, all this stuff. So the the Messianic Jews are looking and are like, wait a minute, like, that's not fair, right? How come they get that Christianity? No, no, no. So Paul leaves and they show up and they're like, hey, if you're going to be a real Christian, if you're going to actually follow what God has for you, we, we have a list of things that you need to do. What they're doing is they were saying Jesus plus. Yeah, 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 Jesus, but also. And they had their list of particular elements. They said Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus food loss, Jesus plus Sabbath, Jesus plus obeying Torah. It was Jesus plus. And what Paul is telling us here is that we get this backwards when we put any actions as a requirement, a prerequisite for accepting acceptance by God. There's literally only two things you're cri- required to do. You know what it is? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. This is the message of John the Baptist in the beginning of Mark. Repent and believe the gospel. What does it mean to repent? Repent means you turn away from the world. And your sinful flesh. No, no, no. I'm going to repent from what I've turned to. And what does believe mean? It means you're turning to Jesus. That is the requirement. That is is what faith is. I'm turning away from my old life. I'm turning away from the brokenness. And I'm turning to Jesus. Adding anything else. You guys, it's a perversion of the gospel. Anything else. it, It messes up the order. Remember, God called us. We didn't call him. And God accepts us right away, despite our lack of merit. The order of the gospel is actually really important: that God accepts us, then he changes us. God receives us, then he transforms our lives. And so the the word that Paul uses here in verse seven, translated either distorts or perverts, it, it literally the word it means reverses. That that they have reversed. The gospel, that's how Tim Keller puts it. He says, the gospel message by its very nature cannot be changed even slightly without being lost. The message of the gospel is that you are saved by grace through Christ's work and nothing else at all. As soon as you add anything to it, you have lost it entirely. The moment you revise it, you reverse it. And this is what's happening in the Galatians church. You know, uh, when I was a kid, so something about me, I've shared this before, like I'm terrified of heights, right? This is why we don't have good Christmas lights at Christmas. This is why we have a low stage, you know? Like I'm just petrified of heights, right? And I actually, I remember the moment uh, when this trauma was introduced into my life. Uh, we took a road trip as a family up to Canada, and we went to these swinging high bridges that were over this rushing water. Now, in my little nine-year-old mind, seven-year-old mind, however old, I was so traumatic, I don't even remember how old I was, okay? Um, we were we were thousands of feet. Of feet of, we were miles. We were like, you know, we were touching the moon, okay? You know, really, it was probably like 80, 90 feet, but I don't feel like falling that far, regardless, okay? And, and uh, m- my parents, they, they would tell me the story and they, they said, I, I just sat down and I would not move. And my dad came over to me and I grabbed his leg and I would not let go for the entirety of this like, journey, which probably just made it like, more scary and traumatic, you know, just like being on these, on, on, you know, on these ropes. And, but here's the thing, okay? Like, I was afraid of falling off the left side and I was equally afraid of falling off the right side. You, I, I know this is like crazy, like, you know, paradigm shifting moment, right? There wasn't one side or the other that felt more dangerous to me. They both felt like a plummet to my death, okay? Now, it, now here, here's where I'm going with this. Jesus says the way is narrow. It, it, it's a path, okay? Or a bridge, And on one side, we can fall away from the gospel through a liberalization of the gospel, through a progressivism of the gospel, and that is dangerous. But on the other side, we can fall away from the gospel through a legalization of the gospel or a pharisaical theology. They're both just as dangerous. And, and I feel like there's so many times in church where we lean so far this way where we're like, no, nope, don't want to be that, don't want to be that, don't want to be that. And we find ourselves off the gospel track because we have become legalized in our faith. We've added to the gospel. Look, we do this today. We would be foolish, so foolish to think that there are not New Testament Pharisees. And we go around and we say, well, nah, but ah, but I got my verse, right? No, nah, no, nah, look, I got my verse. Guess what? So did the Judaizers. So did the religious zealots of that day. They had Bible verses too. But the problem was they used the Bible as a weapon and theology as a tool for, a, for division. And if we're not careful, we can do the exact same thing today. When we, and here's how we do it. We take a good thing and we make it a gospel thing. This is why it's so subtle. Because we don't, we're not taking sinful wrong things and making them gospel things. We're actually taking really good things, okay? And, uh, and I got a few for you, all right? Uh, and this is gonna ruffle some feathers, all right? So if you're not, if you don't get uncomfortable, I'm not doing my job, right? And if you have an issue with what I say, you can reach out to me, kristin at rise.cc. <laughs> <clears throat> all right, so we're gonna talk... Uh, we're going to talk methodology, we're going to talk church tradition, and we're going to talk theological tribe. All right, let's go. Uh, methodologies, this is what methodologies say. Uh, you have to teach the Bible this way and only this way. It has to be verse by verse through the John MacArthur Study Bible, and you better not have less than three alliterated points. And if people aren't bored, then you're not deep enough. And if you've ever make people laugh, then you have no reference for the word of the Lord, okay? This is what methodology says. And some of you guys are like, ah, I, don't, I didn't like some of the things that he hit on. You know why you didn't like some of the things I hit on? Because they're good things. That's my point. (laughs) Is verse by verse teaching a good thing? You better believe it is. This is what we're doing in this series. Is it a gospel thing? No, it is not. It is a methodology. If a church doesn't teach that way, is it compromising the gospel? Absolutely not. The call of the church is to make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to obey. And pastors, we are called to preach the word. So we don't get to preach anything else. We don't get to bring our ideas or our ideologies or, hey, I saw this really cool TED talk or here's this amazing book called Atomic Habits. No, none of that. We get to teach the word, okay? But the way we teach the word, we have to ask ourselves, are we contextualizing it? Are we contextualizing the gospel and teaching people how to be disciples of Jesus? And we have to ask ourselves when evaluating, hey, are they altering the message or are they just altering the methods? We take a good thing and we make it a gospel thing. All right, that's my warm-up, okay? Church traditions, ooh man, okay? Uh, here's our church traditions, here's what we say. We only sing hymns with music from our pipe organ under the quilted banner Sister Gladys made in the 80s while reading from the original KJV translation during the monthly membership potluck in the Musty dank Church basement. Let's go. That's, that's church tradition right there. We are a true expression of the church if we do this and only this. Now again, ruffling some feathers, why? Uh, like, are hymns good? Absolutely hymns are good. My, my, my daughter... She learned this hymn at school when she was singing to it to me the other day. And like my, like I just felt emotional just as she sang the beauty of these words. Are hymns good? Yes. Are they gospel? No. No. Are potlucks good? Well, it depends on who's cooking, right? <laughs> I've had some that I showed up that you're like, no, you better, you better eat beforehand, right? <laughs> Is the King James translation good? Yeseth, I thinketh. Here's the thing about church traditions. Every church tradition becomes a tradition because at some point it was transformational in someone's life. This is why we cling to these things. You're like, no, 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 but but I got saved under that banner that Sister Gladys quilt made. Right? It's sacred to you. This is why church traditions come about, because God has used them. And in that sense, man, it is a good thing. Church traditions can be such a good thing. But we have to be careful that they are not, and they do not become gospel things. And theological tribes, man, this is the one. Today, 2023, this is the worst one today. Um, We care more about what our theological tribe believes and how it falls on certain theological issues than we care about scripture's call to love and build each other up. And like, I'm getting tired of it. It is not good. It is not good. We say things like, um, you have to be Presbyterian or or Baptist or Pentecostal or you're not a true church. You have to speak in tongues or you're not saved. I saw a, a prominent Christian voice the other day said you had to vote with a particular political party or you are not a faithful Christian. Man, I can't tell you how often I hear somebody say, oh, just watch this YouTube video instead of look at this verse. See, the Bible, listen to me, the Bible judges your tribe. Your tribe does not judge the Bible. There's no room for bipartisan tribalism in Christ's one, holy, united church. Can tribes and networks and denominations be good things? Absolutely, absolutely. Every, listen, pretty much everything I listed here, I felt good listing it because in some way, shape, or form, it's shaped my heart. It's spurred me on towards the Lord. These, these are things that, that, that I love. And they're good, but they're not gospel. And I don't know about you, But like, I'm rocking with St. Augustine when he says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. This needs to be the posture of the church. Because look, we can laugh at these Galatians and how they were adding dumb things in our eyes, like circumcision and food and Sabbath to the gospel. But we do the same thing today. We just have different things. We say it's Jesus plus my worship style. It's Jesus plus my church tradition. It's Jesus plus my interpretation of this passage and nothing else can be biblical. It's Jesus plus my political party, plus my Bible translation, plus my theological tribe. And what Paul is saying here is as soon as you add anything to the gospel, you have lost the gospel entirely. We cannot make good things gospel things. And look, I don't know about you, but here's where I'm at. Like I'm down to be predestined to say amen while reciting the Apostles' Creed in a covenant members meeting about private prayer languages in a Baptist foyer as long as it points me deeper into the person and work of Jesus. Amen? Let's stop letting these things divide us. Here's the only equation we need. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That is it. That is what we build our lives upon. Man, it is Jesus. It is the gospel. This is what Paul is saying. And it's so dangerous because adding to the gospel actually rejects Jesus. This is what Paul is arguing here. He says, I'm astonished that you so quickly, you are so quickly deserting him who called you. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about himself. He's not talking about another apostle or another teacher. He's talking about the person of Jesus. To turn away from the true gospel is always to turn away from the person of Christ. And we are in danger of rejecting Jesus himself when we fall more in love with rules than we do with relationship. When we care more about law than we care about love himself. And here's what's so fascinating to me about these religious zealots in Galatia. They had Bible verses to back it up. Like I say, no, 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 no. The Bible called us. It, It says what we can eat and what we can't. God called us to obey Sabbath. Here's the command. God called the males to be circumcised as a sign of promise. But here's the thing. They missed the whole point of the scriptures. All of the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew scriptures are meant to point forward to the person of Jesus as the only sacrifice, as the only way. And the New Testament call to works, you see it. You see works in the New Testament constantly. But what is that? It's meant to be evidence of the gospel's work in your life. It's not how we earn salvation. And so people come around and they say things, well, I'm just a Bible person. So, yeah, well, guess what? So am I, dude. Believe it or not. But so were the Pharisees. And Jesus looked them in the eyes and said, you are sons of your father, the devil. Because you read about me and you miss the whole point of scripture. See, when the Bible becomes a weapon to tear people down, then you, know the wor- then you may know the words, but you've missed the word himself. If your theology makes you focus more on your goodness and how you obey the law and how well you live it out, than God's grace, then you've got some toxic theology. If your theology makes you hate certain tribes of Jesus' church, then you've got dangerous theology. And if you care more about being right and winning arguments than you do about winning souls, then may God help you because you have lost your way. How do we recognize this stuff? Well, this is what Paul is constantly getting at here and he's gonna get at in this book. One is when somebody spends more time talking about the law or the rules than they do about Jesus and the gospel. But but later in this book, he, he gives evidence. And sometimes I find myself in a challenging conversation with someone. And they have all kinds of ammo and arguments. And I just sit back and I ask myself this question: What fruit do I see in their life and ministry? Is this a conversation marked by love? Is this marked by joy? Is there peace being brought about by this conversation? Do they have patience? Is their voice filled with kindness and goodness? Are they faithful? Are they gentle? Are they self controlled? See, we have to, as a church, we have to discern these voices. Whether or not they are of the spirit or they are the voices that Paul is actually warning us about. Because adding to the gospel wounds the church. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The whole point of this letter is Paul is protecting his church. He's like, man, this is infiltrated and they're convincing you because they're either more mature or more eloquent or more experienced or they know more verses and they're winning you over but they're taking you from Jesus and destroying this church and I'm gonna have nothing to do with this. The word he uses here for trouble is the word terasso. It means to trouble, to terrify, to confuse, ah, like, Wait, I thought Paul said, I thought the gospel was this, but man, it's really convincing when you say X, Y, Z or to even stir up. Man, they're stirring up dissension, stirring up division. And, And this is the third way that we can identify dangerous theology. False teaching. Wolves. You can identify a dangerous wolf when their behavior stirs up division within the church. They question the salvation of believers and the legitimacy of a church based on secondary and tertiary theological issues rather than gospel centrality. It's dangerous, man. I, uh, As somebody in my life, just incredibly mature, older woman of God, And uh, her her church went through this transition, brought in new leadership. And about six, nine months afterwards, I was asking her, I was like, hey, how's church going? She's like, it's okay. I'm like, that's not a rave review, right? (laughs) What's going on? And she goes, and this is a woman who has been faithfully serving the Lord for decades in her 70s. And she goes, you know, it's just hard Every time I sit in church and go home, I just spend the whole time questioning my salvation. And I was like, that's not good news. That's a contradiction. John Stott, he puts it like this He says, the two chief characteristics of false teachers are that they were troubling the church and changing the gospel. These two go together to tamper with the gospel is always to trouble the church. You cannot touch the gospel and leave the church untouched because the church is created and lives by the gospel. And so it becomes this evidence. I um, want you just like imagine with me, hypothetically, um, I went out to uh, coffee or lunch w- with a couple. And... Uh, Open up the conversation. Like, hey, we just wanted to talk to you about a couple things. Uh, we just need to tell you how much we love you. Like, you're, you're just amazing. You're caring. You're a good leader. You have amazing fashion. You do such a good job expositing the scriptures. We love being a part of this church. We just have one issue. We really don't like your wife. This, didn't, this is hypothetical. I said this. Man. I saw three pitchforks, okay? (laughs) Hypothetical. Imagine they say, we just don't like her personality. She always has to be the center of attention. She just has so many flaws. One time, I kid you not, she didn't say hi to me at church. We don't like her music style. We don't like the way she looks. Look, we love you. We just don't like your wife. We want a relationship with you, but we want nothing to do with your bride. Would I feel honored in that moment? Absolutely not, right? And it's kind of a dumb hypothetical because like like who would do that? It's insulting. It'd be wounding. It'd be damaging. Dare I say, it'd even be risky on their part. (laughs) Yet somehow we talk about Christ's bride that way. And we think we're honoring him by saying, Jesus, I love you, but I don't love your church. You guys, we're flawed. We have bumps and bruises. We have areas we fall short. But we are the chosen bride of Christ. And Jesus loves his bride. And if we think we can tear it apart and trouble and confuse, divide and abandon a gospel-built church, and also love Jesus at the same time we are deeply deceived. And so, here is my hope as we work through this book. May we love Jesus and protect his bride. You guys, I I love doctrine. It's beautiful. I love theology. It's wonderful. In fact, after we finish this, we're gonna do a whole series, a two-month series on core doctrines of the church. We're gonna study theology. This is why I've given my life to it. But there's a purpose to theology. There's a purpose to doctrine. You know what it is to make us fall more in love with God? Theology is the study of God. And we study the word. We study theology. We know doctrine not to win arguments and divide churches, but to fall more in love with God and to protect the church that Jesus has entrusted us with. And so, look, I'm just gonna be super honest. Like, I feel this stirring. I mean, I told you six, nine months ago, like when Nolan was getting ready to leave, I was gonna be on guard. And there's a stirring of this stuff. And it does not honor the Lord. And here's my call to our church, that as we learn to love Jesus and protect his bride, uh, Man, would you pray for this church? What Jesus has built through His gospel work, He will sustain through His gospel work, and He will advance through His gospel work. And the opposition is only going to increase. Sometimes it's going to be from the outside; that's easier to recognize. You know when it's harder to recognize when it's from the inside. You, you realize when the apostles warn about wolves, they say they don't say wolves in wolves' clothing, right? Like somebody's going to show up in like a wolf outfit and you're like, hmm, suspicious. They're going to show up and they're going to go, bat, And they're going to look like a sheep. But the fruit of their life and the fruit of their ministry and the fruit of their convictions and conversation brings division. Man, we have to pray against that and we have to protect our church against it. We have to say now, we're going to continue over and over and over to go back to Jesus. And this kind of divisive language and conversation, it has no place in the bride of Christ. We need to come back to the gospel. Jesus, would you just make us fall more in love with you? Would we fall deeper? Into your gospel and your goodness and your word. Would we love doctrine and theology because it pushes us to love you more? It's how we can guard against and be aware of false, faulty teaching, either liberal progressive or legalistic Pharisaical. Lord, we don't want to fall on either side, we want to stay on the path. That you have guided us in. And so, Lord, would you use this next couple months through your beautiful word in powerful ways in our church? Would you protect us? Would you guide us? Would you lead us? Would you direct us deeper and deeper and deeper into relationship with you, love for you, and love for your bride? I pray all this in your name.